0: Uh, Today, uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss key priorities, uh, both domestic uh, and global, so that China can better understand our administration's intentions and approach. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. That's why they're not merely internal matters and why we feel an obligation uh, to raise these issues uh, here today. Uh, I said that the United States relationship with China will be competitive where it should be, collaborative where it can be, adversarial where it must be.
1: I'm Andrew Xu, and welcome to the Aftermath. Two weeks ago, the first high-level meeting between China and the U.S. under the Biden administration took place. During the meeting, the U.S. and China exchanged their grievances against the other side, with the U.S. calling China out for its mistreatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and its curtailing of freedoms in Hong Kong, while China took the U.S. to town for its treatment of Black Americans. Today I am joined by Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institute. Now. Bear in mind that the views expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of MIR. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Aftermath. And today I am joined by Michael O'Hanlon, the Director of Research in Foreign Policy Studies at the Brookings Institution. Michael O'Hanlon, thanks for coming on.
0: Andrew, nice to be with you today. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, So to jump right in, obviously, we're talking about the Alaska summit that happened last Thursday, where the U.S. had a lot of concerns about some of China's actions, which included the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and and some of the stuff that's been happening in Hong Kong, Taiwan, as well as cyber attacks on the U.S. So obviously, it would be impossible to summarize all of them for this episode. So instead, I'm going to narrow our focus down on like one or two of them. Would you mind giving a brief rundown of China's treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang because that's something I'm kind of passionate about.
0: Yeah, thank you, because this is an important question where I actually have a difference of opinion, not only most importantly with the Chinese government and its treatment of the Uyghurs, but also of the United States government's position that this treatment amounts to genocide. I don't know about you, but growing up when I did and then studying genocide Historically, and even in the course of my lifetime, I think of genocide as what Hitler did to the Jews, or what the Turks uh, did to the Armenians in 1915, or what the uh, Rwandan Hutu did to the Tutsi in 1994, or possibly the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, although that was more, you know, one group killing members of the same group. So that that was more ideologically motivated and, and less about, you know, one, one kind of group try to exterminate another. But the point about genocide is that it's really trying to eliminate a population or a large, large fraction thereof. And I think the US government uses that term now in response or in regard to China's treatment of the Uyghurs because there have been a number of known instances of either forced sterilization or certainly family planning. And, um, and you know, therefore one could imagine the Uyghur population being reduced over time in what therefore amounts to sort of slow motion genocide by other means. Uh, But I still don't think the same term should be used that we associate with gas chambers and machetes and killing fields. So uh, I think severe repression is the better way to think of it. And what the Chinese have essentially done in this area, the ethnic Chinese is is, is to face down the ethnic Uyghur population, much of which is Muslim and much of which doesn't feel itself very Chinese and try to just inculcate in them a completely different sense of nationhood. And if they can't do that, then marginalize them. And that's perhaps where the genocide concern comes into play. Uh, But what's happening now is largely imprisonment, quote unquote, re-education or indoctrination, trying to make these Uyghurs good communists rather than good Muslims. And uh, rather than having an identity with their own ethnic group, having an identity with the Chinese nation and state. And the methods are reasonably repressive uh, or unreasonably repressive. They are strong-armed. They are generally not violent, as I understand the situation. But they certainly involve uh, coercion, forced incarceration, and in some cases, perhaps uh, forced sterilization, which, of course, is violent. So I don't want to suggest the Chinese deserve any kind of, you know, a, a whitewash over what they're doing. Uh, and I think it is severe repression, it's just not genocide.
1: Okay, um, so would you say it would be correct to use the term concentration camps for like what what they're being put in? Well, I think I should stay
0: agnostic on that because I you may have done this and it may be possible to do this. I have not studied the aerial photographs that may be available. I have not seen um, firsthand photographs I have only read in black and white on the printed page uh, what's going on. And my understanding is that these are internment camps and they are camps where you know they're akin to prisons. And uh, that is serious enough and bad enough and unacceptable enough that the United States government, the Canadian government, and many others should be objecting as we are. So again, I'm not trying in any way to suggest that what China's doing is defensible or okay. But no, I would not use the term concentration camp from what I have seen so far. Now, maybe if I saw uh, footage, I would have to revisit that if indeed the conditions were so inhumane or if indeed the conditions were uh, combined with violence and uh, you know w- with punishment, uh, severe punishment, physical corporal punishment, uh, or certainly killing that's when I start to use the term concentration camp. And from what I understand, this is closer to a
1: forced internment, which again is bad enough, but is different. Okay, Um, so for the sake of time, I'm just gonna, um, since there are like so many grievances that the US has with China, I'm just gonna ask you for like one more rundown, which is just some of the freedoms that have been curtailing in Hong Kong. Would you mind elaborating on some of the stuff that's been happening there?
0: Yeah. And again, uh, I'm happy to comment, but I'm really just giving you a generalist uh, opinion. My, my overall expertise is really on what I would call traditional national security matters. So military forces, use of force, territorial disputes, to some extent, things like cyber warfare. Uh, so Hong Kong and political freedom is you know, of interest to me and importance, but I wouldn't consider myself a specialist. Having said that, I think it's important to begin with the history. The history is the British took Hong Kong from the Chinese, and this happened in the 19th century. It was part of, may even have been, may have begun sooner than that, but it certainly took off with the European powers carving up pieces of China in the 19th century, insisting on trading privileges for their own companies. Uh, In the case of the Brits, actually bringing opium and making the Chinese buy and use it to create a market for opium that they Uh, largely produced in India or elsewhere. And so the British history with Hong Kong is really quite reprehensible, frankly, probably worse than what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang province today, and certainly uh, no better. But that's the context in which Hong Kong was established, and the British just held on to it, even as with the aftermath of the world wars and the aftermath of uh, decolonization movements, they had to give up their other holdings within China. And certainly when the Chinese Communist Party came to power in 1949, it was no longer conceivable that European or other Western powers could hold on to chunks of China, but the British still did keep Hong Kong. And then uh, by the late 1990s, there was uh, a deal struck by which Britain would, uh, as required in an earlier treaty, surrender its hold on Hong Kong but it would try to protect the prerogatives of uh, many people living there, many Brits, many Chinese, but all of them with some kind of, or most of them with some kind of a Hong Kong identity distinct from attachment to China and very happy with this city that was an international crossroads, that was free, that had a lot of energy and bustle, that had political liberties, that, um, you know, even though it once had been. Uh, British colony was really a functioning democracy in most ways in the latter decades of the 20th century. And the deal was that China would take over broader sovereign control, but that it would uh, preserve many of those separate liberties. And it would have some say in the governance, but it would also allow for a vibrant, independent, democratic Hong Kong citizenry and political class. And that's the deal that has been repudiated in the last couple of years. So for 20 years or so, the Chinese basically said, we'll stick to our bargain. We'll still try to exercise quite a bit of influence in Hong Kong. And everyone knows we could do more if we chose to because we have physical proximity and military power. And it's only by our good graces and our previous agreements and also our economic self-interest that we keep Hong Kong largely as we promised. But no one can really force us to do that. And in fact, this is historically Chinese territory. And the fact that it was separate from China for so long was a wrongful act by the British, not something that the Chinese government needs to apologize for or in any way accept. So I think as the Chinese looked back on the history with that kind of an attitude, uh, some of it quite understandable. And then also as President Xi continued his crackdown on independence and dissidents inside of China, which is of course, to a Western mind, less understandable, and in fact, unacceptable. But you put those two things together and and then you throw in a little COVID. And uh, she had no qualms whatsoever about responding to last summer's protest movements with in fact, not just a uh, a crackdown to, you know, squash out the the, the new demands for new liberties, but actually uh, well beyond that to take away many of the previous uh, trappings of democracy and, and real elements of democracy that Hong Kong had had, uh, even since reversion to Hong Kong or re- re- reversion to China 20 years earlier. And so now we're living in a new world where essentially Hong Kong's becoming fully part of China. And it's harder and harder to distinguish the way it's governed from the way the rest of the country is governed. You know, China does have coastal cities like Shanghai that have their own spirit, their own energy, that their own local political leaders who have some leeway granted them by the Central Communist Party in Beijing. And I think Hong Kong will probably stay like that. It will still have its own local flavor and be different in some ways from the rest of China. But it'll be clear that ultimately, uh, the the uh, folks calling the shots are President Xi and his team in Beijing. And Hong Kong will have to operate within that kind of a construct. There is no longer any pretense that it's really got its own a separate form of government. So I think that's where we are now.
1: Yeah, so like um, we're reaching to the point that ordinarily would have been reached in the year 2047, I believe.
0: Yeah, although people always hoped that even when we got to uh, the middle of the century and the 50 year agreement played itself out that by then either China would have become more democratic or Hong Kong would have really found a way to coexist in a world where it was one part fully chinese and one part fully itself and that no one really had any problems with that dual identity and that hong kong could forevermore go on being the kind of city that it had been for much of the you know second half of the 20th century and unfortunately that's not going to happen so in other words you're right it was only it was always going to be a 50 year period but the hope was that in those 50 years you would solidify a separate identity in not just cultural and geographic terms, but in economic and political terms. And that Hong Kong, even within China, would have a somewhat distinct uh, way of life and it doesn't appear very likely that will be the case, especially in the the, uh,
1: realm of politics. Okay, yeah, so those are just a few of the grievances that the US brought with them in the summit on Alaska last week. Um So obviously, as we both know, it things went south and there was a lot of disagreement and adversarial relationship. Um, so I remember I saw you um, retweeting a tweet from the Brookings Institute that shared an article from the Atlantic. Um, basically, the idea is that um, the adversarial relationship, reflected in the summit is a good thing because it shows that things are moving forward. Would you mind like elaborating on that point of view? Yeah, I'm not gonna speak for Tom Wright who
0: wrote the article that you're referring to but I'll speak for myself. And, um, and I do think that there's at least some uh, accuracy to what Tom has identified here as a, a usefulness in getting things out in the open. For one thing, we should remember that even in the better period of US-China relations, let's say of the uh, late 1980s, 90s, early 2000s, even in those periods, there were often severe disagreements with new American presidents and Beijing uh, over Tiananmen Square and a few other matters, the EP3 episode in 2001, when the Chinese forced down one of our reconnaissance planes. And so it's not as if it's unusual to have some difficult interaction as people sort of stake out their territory. And by the way, the main exception to that rule was probably, well, the last two presidents, Obama and Trump. Arguably, they both got off to a pretty good start with China, but they, or at least they tried to be conciliatory. And they both wound up with pretty bad relationships, worse than when they started. So just the historical track record would suggest that you're better off with China just getting your disagreements in the open doesn't mean that the way it happened was perfect, but I don't think it was any great damage and everybody in that room was an adult. And by the way, most of what we hear is that they were able to do real business in that room once the cameras and the media left and once they sort of had made their strong statements for their respective
1: audiences at home and in the other country. So, um, so wait, so you said like the strong statements that they could make at home. Is it just like them playing to the camera so that they could just post it on YouTube and like brag about themselves?
0: Yeah, but I don't think it was quite, I think it had a purpose. I think it had um, a purpose, not just for home audience, but for the other country uh, staking out again, a confidence, a, a commitment to one's own country and its ways an unapologetic view of the world and uh, you know a clear willingness to hold the other side accountable for things that one could not accept the other side doing. So it wasn't just for internal audience and it certainly wasn't just for personal grandstanding. It was for a purpose, a policy purpose, but it did not preclude from what I understand uh, the private conversations actually having some degree of seriousness and constructiveness as well. So I'm not overly worried that this happened. uh, I do think it's going to be important for President Biden to really reinforce the message that Secretary Blinken delivered in Alaska, which is that we see the relationship with China in three broad categories, areas where we cooperate, areas where we compete, and areas where we're adversarial. And the key is to minimize that latter basket, because adversity is not good. But competition is fine. And certainly cooperation on some issues like global warming or North Korea or pandemic disease is essential. And so if you can start to frame your approach to the other country in these terms, then no one's surprised. And often in international politics, what happens is most troubling when people are surprised and they wind up, you know, being caught wrong-footed, they overreact to something they didn't see coming, they resent at a personal and a policy level, uh, uh, what they see as a betrayal. So you don't wanna surprise people, but it's okay to disagree. And especially if we can take that third bucket of issues, the ones where there's a risk of adversity and make sure the adversity does not translate into conflict, especially not military conflict, but even, uh, even zero sum economic conflict. If we can minimize the adversity bucket of issues, and focus in with equal energy on the areas of cooperation as well as the areas of competition, then I think we have a good framework for moving forward.
1: Okay, um, so do you mind if I circle back to the the article from the Atlantic that you retweeted? Um, You can,
0: but I've got, this is my last question. I got to go in two minutes and I'm not going to speak for Tom, right? So, um,
1: you know, I'm going to speak for myself and we've got one more question. I'm sorry, I don't have that much time, so. Yeah, Yeah, last last question is just, um, I'm going to quote the article for a second, which it says, the truth is that the United States does pose a threat to the Chinese Communist Party's interests, although not necessarily those of the Chinese people while the CCP surely poses a threat to liberal democracy and US interests. So like for lack of better term, do you think that um, the Chinese people have been indoctrinated by their government into thinking that democratic rule is untenable for them? Well, my sense is
0: that the Chinese people, if you look at the grassroots, especially, they want a say in how their lives are run. And there is a lot of political ferment and activity at the level of the city or the province, and the Chinese government is smart enough to let some of that happen, even though it wants to control it more than we would like or do ourselves here in the United States. And um, and so I think the Chinese people want some kind of say in how their lives are run. They may or may not feel that the CCP um, is... A vehicle for doing that in the country as a whole over the long term. They're not really being given a choice in that matter uh, over the long term. But a lot of them don't really uh, prioritize that issue at the moment, as best I can tell. I think back to the book by a colleague of mine at Brookings and a writer for The New Yorker named Evan Osnos. And he wrote a book about seven years ago called Age of Ambition. And it's about China. He lived in China for a decade. And the subtitle is something to the effect of chasing um, faith, truth, and fortune in the new China. In other words, what he's trying to capture, and I think he's right, he knows China better than I do by far, but the people in China today are trying to have a better life. They're trying to establish their identity. They're actually in search of some kind of bigger meaning. and. Chinese party's opposition to religion is another mistake that it makes because some people find meaning in religion. Others find it perhaps in a sense of Chinese nationhood or history, others through their families. In any event, most people in China today, I believe are not necessarily obsessed with the question of communism versus democracy. They're more focused on improving their lives within the parameters in which they can operate and live. And in some cases that involves local participatory governance, Uh, what we might call, you know, democracy at the grassroots level or the local level. In other cases, it doesn't really involve high matters of state. It's more about economic betterment, uh, more about spirituality, more about uh, ambition in a personal or communal sense. And so I just don't know that this is the number one question for most Chinese. I mean, uh, you know, ultimately, you're going to do better and find better guests to speak to the to the interests and the uh, goals of the Chinese people. I have not lived in China. I've only visited on short trips, uh, eight or 10 times in my life. I don't consider myself a full-time specialist on China. I'm a national security specialist. So all I can do is give you my sense that ultimately I think the Chinese people do care about the quality of their lives and do have some degree of accountability they would like to hold their government to, but they're not obsessing with this question of democracy quite the way we sometimes do in the West. Okay,
1: Michael O'Hanlon, thanks for coming
0: on. Andrew, thank you. And I'm sorry I don't have more time, but appreciate the chance and have a great rest of the weekend.
1: Thank you for listening to MIR. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until then, this has been The Aftermath.